Good evening. Before we study God's Word together, let's go to our Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for claiming us as Your people. And Father, we, we pray that You might have Your way with us as we've just sung. Lord, we want to be people who are faithful to You, who fulfill the purposes that, that You've given to us. And Father, we pray that whenever we listen or study Your Word, that we will have those eyes that see what You are trying to tell us and that hear and will respond to You. Father, be with us. Help us, Lord, as we seek to live to serve You. In Your Son's name, Amen. This morning, we began a two-part series on being God's people. And in our, the lesson this morning, we looked at the idea of identity. Um, who are God's people? And from Scripture, we saw the need to understand the Lord's perspective about who belongs to the Lord, who His people are. And to answer the question, who does God claim belong to Him, we notice several principles. Um, one of those, the f- first one, is that it's through covenant that God is claiming people for Himself. And so there's the story of Abraham. And God offers Abraham a covenant and claims him and says, I'm going to be your God. Later on to Israel at Mount Sinai, they will have a sacrifice. And this is in response to what God wants to offer them. He says, I want to take you to be my treasured possession, a holy nation. And so there's a sacrifice to seal this relationship, this covenant, that they might become his holy nation, his special people. And this blood of the covenant is then taken and it's sprinkled on the people. And as it's sprinkled on them, this relationship is sealed and God claims and gives them that promise, I am your God and you are my people. And then later on in Scripture, we also saw how that God is offering to the world the possibility of belonging to Him. And He does this through the sacrifice of Christ. And Christ dies on the cross to make possible yet a new covenant. A new covenant whereby God is promising to take people to belong to Him as well as to forgive them of their sins. Hebrews chapter 19, or 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 22, draw together some of these ideas along with their response to Christ. To answer the question, well, how does someone enter this new covenant? Hebrews chapter 10 points to this. In verse 19, the author writes, We have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Christ. He's just written in chapters 8 and 9 about how the blood of Christ, how his death made possible this new covenant. And now at this conclusion, this statement that's concluding everything from chapter 8 up through chapter 10 and verse 18, he concludes it with, Therefore, therefore, because of all that I've told you 
about the, the death of Christ and this new covenant and the blood that makes all of this possible. Therefore, God's people, you can have confidence because of the blood of Christ. You can have confidence to come into the very presence of God, into the sanctuary. And then he goes on in verse 22 to say, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance of faith brings. Because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In chapter 9, he's reminded the his readers, that it was the blood that was sprinkled of bulls and goats back then at Mount Sinai externally that, that at least outwardly purified them. But now they have the blood of Christ that goes so much further. And it's not something external. But now, this is on the heart. And just as they were sprinkled with blood and, and entered the covenant and God claimed them, now the blood of Christ is sprinkled on the heart and he ties together this, this blood of Christ that purifies with their bodies being washed in water. Entering the new covenant involves trusting in Christ and responding to Him by, be, by being baptized. And the church is comprised of those who have believed and been baptized. So, if, if this is who God is recognizing as His people, if these are the principles that God has given on how He identifies who belongs to Him, what's next? Where do God's people go from there? God is going to send messengers. And one of those messengers is the Apostle Paul. In fact, the word apostle in the original language means sent. One who is sent. And so there is this one who is sent among others to the church. And he's going to work with these, these people that God is recognizing as being his people. And there's going to be help and guidance given to them on how they need to move forward. And Paul is going to work with fledgling congregations and, and guide them. And he will work with establishing new congregations of, of people who belong to God. The scripture reading that we had just a moment ago, 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, reminds us not only that Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth was to provide salvation. But it also reminds us something about this servant, this, this messenger that, that God has sent, this Apostle Paul, that Paul had been Saul of Tarsus, that persecutor of the early church. I'm the worst of sinners, Paul would write. So who was this messenger? And how is he going to work with the churches? Well, let's survey his life very briefly. It was just a few years after Jesus' death, probably about 35 A.D., when Saul, this persecutor of Christians, as a result of having encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, would obey Ananias' instruction to arise and to be baptized and to wash his sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. It's, it's going to be sometime after this that Paul is going to receive by revelation, the message that he needs to proclaim. He's going to describe this in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. He would write, The gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is an incredible claim. No one has taught me the message that I'm proclaiming and working and sharing with churches. This is something that God has given me, that Christ has given me. I did not learn it from any man. It's not of men. Then late in Paul's life, he's going to write some letters. He's writing some letters to some guys who have, if you will, boots on the ground in the churches. Timothy and Titus. We call them the, the pastoral epistles. And he is going to try to help these individuals who are working with churches, with boots on the ground, to work with these people that God is saying, these are my people. And how do they move forward? Sometime in perhaps between 62 and 67 A.D., that's the time frame that Paul is going to write these pastoral epistles, letters, to Timothy and to Titus. He's going to give them instructions on how to minister to the church. His intent is to help these Christian workers to understand and to have guidance so they can help these people who belong to the Lord and who the Lord is saying, these are mine. To help these people move forward as they ought. For example, consider what he writes to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. In those two chapters, he provides a mini handbook on the church's worship, as well as its functional organization, how this body of those whom God is claiming as His is supposed to function. And he concludes that section in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, we read, I am writing these things to you. He's described how there should be prayers. He's described the role of women. He's described that there needs to be people called deacons. They're servants and they have certain sorts of functions and who the characteristics and the type of people these deacons should be. He's described overseers, these bishops, who also have a function in the body. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. You're working with God's people. And they need to know how they need to move forward. He says, this household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Yes? I'm writing these things so you'll know how God's people need to conduct themselves. He's going to say right here that this church is the foundation, it's the pillar, the support of, of truth. But if this is not something automatic, it's not sufficient just simply to say the church is this pillar and the support of the truth. No, what Paul is writing is, is what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the pillar and the support of the truth. It's supposed to rise up to being this. And it does as it teaches what is true. Part of the reason why Paul is, is writing to Timothy and to Titus 
and giving them these instructions to these, these Christian workers with boots on the ground in the churches is because he recognizes a problem has come up. And these pastoral epistles, as he's writing late in his life, is to try and help them as they work with churches going forward. Unfortunately, Timothy and Titus are, are both going to continue to encounter a threat. A threat of, of some false teaching that's going to try to alter and change what the church is doing and what it's teaching. And, and look at how Paul words what they're encountering. First Timothy chapter 1. He opens his letter up to Timothy and he immediately calls their attention to what he's facing. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. It's only a few decades. It's only a few decades since Christ has died. And already there in the church at Ephesus, some have begun to teach what Paul calls strange doctrines. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. He continues on in that letter, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come, he warns Timothy, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. There's going to be people who, who want a very satisfying message. That they want to hear what they want to hear. They just want to feel good, if you will. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. As he writes to Timothy or to Titus, they're on the island of Crete. He's going to say, for there are many rebellious men. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they ought not to teach. And it's for the sake of sordid gain. So how does a, an apostle handle the situation of, of strange and unhealthy teachings influencing the people that God is saying, these are my people? How does apostle provide guidance and help for, for those who will be working with these churches so they can know how to go forward in that situation? Well, this is going to be the, the focus of the remainder of our time is what does Paul do? And we're going to find, I would suggest, at least three ideas that he gives to these Christian workers. And here is part of Paul's instruction against strange doctrines. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to remind them that God has entrusted his message to people. God's entrusted people with his message. Look at how he words this. To Titus, he writes, chapter 1, verse 3, the opening of the letter, the setting of the tone for what is going to follow. At his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. God has commanded. God has commanded this message. He's entrusted to me. This preaching, Paul is speaking about his ministry. This preaching has been entrusted to me at God's command. 
to Timothy, he's going to put it this way. He writes about the law was made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Yes, here's that message. And Paul is going to tag on the message of that glorious gospel has been entrusted to me. He's raising the awareness of something that is very important. This is a message that's been entrusted. Second Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, chapter one, starting in verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering the way I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. He writes about being appointed. God has entrusted him. He's appointed him. Here is what I want you to do. But it's not just that God has given Paul a role of being a herald and being one who is sent, commissioned, and being this teacher, but he's given him a message. And And God is saying, here is what I want you to do, Paul, and here is what I want you to proclaim. And Paul continues, yes, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit for that day. What does my deposit refer to? Is this something that is, is my is, is, is this Paul's deposit? Is this something that God has given to Paul and now it's Paul's and he's. God has deposited something to Paul and and Paul is to hang on to it? Or is my deposit, is is this something that Paul has given to God? And God is, is going to secure whatever Paul has given to God. The NIV translation will translate this in a way to suggest that Paul has given something to God. And that God can guard whatever this is that Paul has given to God. I agree with James Thompson that the context here points to God having given something to Paul. He's entrusted something to Paul. And namely, it's this message in his ministry. And we find out as this context continues to unfold that it's not just Paul who's been entrusted with this. This deposit, but this deposit has also been given is being given to Timothy. Paul will remind Timothy that he's been entrusted as well with the deposit and that he is supposed to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So second Timothy, chapter one, verses 13 and 14, he says, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's how you move forward, Timothy. You remember that message that you've heard me preach over and over? It's the same thing. It's not new. You keep it. You guard it. You keep that as what you need to be preaching. And he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. You see, I've been entrusted. I have a deposit that was given to me by God. And now you've heard me preach that message. And now you take that and you guard it. The same message that was entrusted. 
to me is now entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Timothy is to proclaim the same message he had, per, he had heard Paul teaching and, and preaching. He too has been entrusted. And the message that Timothy has, has now heard and received and that the Lord had first entrusted to Paul as a deposit, it, it's not just the basic gospel message. It, it also contains the doctrines, the teachings that Paul is giving in, this, in these letters and others about how the church needs to move forward in being those people that God says, you are mine. How they need to conduct themselves in their lives. How they approach God in worship. This is not the end of the progression of what is being entrusted. Paul next turns to Timothy and says, you're the guy with boots on the ground in the churches there. And now you need to entrust it to faithful men too. That they can pass it on to others. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 2. And the third... And the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. There is a progression, a chain. Paul's received it. He's passed it to Timothy. Timothy's to be looking out in the church and say, okay, who, who can I pass this message on to who's going to be capable to take the same message that's coming from God and to pass it on to subsequent people as well? There is a chain and this very, this very message that Paul is laying out in 2 Timothy, it reveals a concern for authenticity. It reveals a value upon God's Word. In contrast to all the ideas, the strange things that, that different people have been coming up with, Paul is going to tell the fellow with boots on the ground, Here's how you need to be thinking. Here's what's valuable. And here's how you need to be working. You know, this evening, we've got these pastoral epistles. And do you know what that means? We have been entrusted with the message as well. We have the message. But Paul is teaching what he taught others to be teaching to others, to be passing along. Well, how did Paul respond to the, the threat of strange ideas influencing these people that God is saying, these are my people? Well, the, one of the first things he will do in these pastoral letters is he is going to remind the workers that they have been entrusted with a message. It comes from God and they need to teach others to entrust this to others and so forth. So what does it mean to be entrusted with God's message? Well, one of the very first obvious things that just jumps out is that this message is not Paul's message. He can't change this. He can't alter this in any way that he might think is best. It's God's message. And he's been entrusted with it. It's not his. As he will tell Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, Titus, you must teach what is in accord to that healthy or that sound doctrine. There are ideas and teachings that God has given us, and they are healthy, and you must teach what's in accordance with that. 
It's regardless of what human desires are. It's regardless of what cultural pressures are. God desires His message to be faithfully repeated. And that message is going to shape His people and how they live and how they think and how they love and treat other people. And they're going to be beautiful and and winsome and show the love of Christ. And God will work through them as He writes to, as Paul would write to the Philippian church that it, in chapter 2, that it is God who works and will His will in us to, to His will and good pleasure. He works through His people according to His will and good pleasure. Chapter 2 and 12. And so this message is going to shape the church. They need to be passed on to subsequent generations. You see, Paul's emphasis upon God's message being entrusted should cause people to value the original message. And, and as time moves on, as, as people look at the message to evaluate where they are in history and if alterations have been made to go back to that original message that God gave to the people of God and how they are to move forward. Unfortunately, not everyone values the original message as priority. I wish I didn't have to say that. But I read theological literature. (laughs) I know what's out there. Not everyone places that as the priority. Pragmatics can come in as the priority. What we want is size. We want to get as big, as quick as we possibly can. And if size is what takes priority, then that will determine what is said and not said, and what is done and not done. If the priority is compatibility with the culture, respectability with the culture, it changes and it shapes the message. Classic example, 1800s, a a Russian intellectual. He's considered by many to be a a theological genius. He's over there in Russia. He's dealing with the... he's, He's rubbing shoulders with the intellectual elite of his day. Among the intellectual elite... The idea of miracles, the, the idea that God enters history powerfully and does things that, well, <laughs> that was crazy. And so he takes the message, he takes and he creates a theology. He creates a message that's going to be acceptable to the intellectual elite. Compatible. Palatable. And the message has lots of characteristics of the original, but lots of changes, too. But it won't be despised. The intellectual elite can, can relegate this God into a box of their choosing and, and be happy with this religious presentation of Christ that Schleiermacher presented. What might give it, be given priority and value is adhering to a particular teacher's understanding of a message or a, a religious tradition. That may take priority. Ian Fair has accurately pointed out in a book that he contributed to that whatever is the priority, whatever is the goal of interpretation, a church is going to interpret the text to achieve that goal and it will shape the message. We have a history. 
We have a history that values returning back to the original message and the teachings and the practices that the Lord gave His people and to allow them to shape who we are and how we approach God. To to be faithful in, in trying to offer God and be the people as God wants us to be. Now, this goal of, of being faithful to the message is to honor God's desire to shape us. It, it's not to be some sort of a, a pin that we put on and wear and, and say, well, I, we've arrived. <laughs> that, that as though by being faithful, that's the goal. No. The goal is to honor God and to have Him shape us as He wants, but to do that, we need to be faithful to the message. And and there's no room for pride or for lifting oneself up in doing what the Lord says. Um, We hear the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. There Jesus would tell those who would be His disciples, when you have done everything you're commanded to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. We've only been the people that we're supposed to be. It's not a badge we can wear. But we've been the people that we're supposed to be and we've served the Lord as the Lord wants. You see, our confidence is in Christ, not ourselves. Our understanding and our teaching is to be shaped by God's Word. And how we go about worshiping and teaching and living each day is to be our faithful response to the One who had gave His Son to die for us, who bought us and says, You're mine! And now live as those that I'm shaping and molding. So, how does an apostle help some guys who got boots on the ground in the churches, work with those churches where, where ideas have come in. And he says, well, one thing you got to remember, let's start with the message. It's from God and we're entrusted. It's a deposit given to us. But another aspect that he's going to bring in as he writes these letters, a second one, is that God's Word is the standard of what is true. In contrast to the multitude of human perspectives, the pastoral epistles are, are replete with, as, as well as the rest of Scripture, we're recognizing that Scripture tells us what is true. Here's how Paul puts it to Titus. Paul, a servant of God. For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, To Timothy, he's going to start off shortly into the letter this way, 1 Timothy 2.4, God who wants all men to be saved and to come to this, a knowledge of the truth. This message is dealing with what is true. Repeatedly, Paul will emphasize the truthfulness of the message that they're to proclaim. He's going to do it with variations of the phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. Throughout these epistles, Uh, pastoral epistles, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. You can take this to the bank. It's true. You can rely on it. God's Word is the standard of what is true and what is to be done. But a third principle that he brings out in these pastoral letters involves stewardship. You've been entrusted. You have a deposit. But stewardship involves accountability. And so he's going to counsel Timothy to be a certain type of workman. 
2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best, Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Yes, as we're working and moving forward and, and being the people that God wants us to be, we need to do our best to be those people that God wants us to be. And to handle God's Word faithfully and accurately. He will go on um, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He puts it this way. Watch your life and doctrine closely, Timothy. Pay close attention to what you, how you're living and what you're teaching. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These words of Paul in the pastorals about this accountability and watching. They recall what Paul wrote to the, the Corinthian church, and we'll close with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as Paul writes to the church there, he, he reminds them that stewards, those that have been trusted with something, are accountable. He writes it in this way, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. God has given them something. He's given them a message, a ministry. And now they need to do exactly what God has given them. They need to, be, they need to prove faithful in this. He will provide some guidelines for them. One of the first that he provides in chapter 4 in, in speaking about how the church needs to move forward and thinking about these individuals who are teaching them and that they're servants and they've been entrusted with things. He tells the church, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. Now, I'm not a betting person. But if I were, I think I could win a bet on this verse. I think when people hear this verse, judge nothing before the appointed time, what people are hearing in their head is don't condemn anything before the end. That's half true. That's only half the side of the coin. You see, a judge says, you're guilty. A judge says, you're innocent. There's two types of judgments people make. And the message to the church was, judge nothing before the appointed time. That's not just a message of don't condemn. Paul tells the church of Corinth, don't judge. You see, there are some things that we have the parameters of what God has given us, all the teaching of what God has said. We can know that. We can run around within that freedom, within the parameters of what God has given us. But there are other things that are outside of those parameters. And how do we handle and navigate those, that territory? Well, Paul's going to tell the, this church that's enamored with human well, personalities, I'm of a Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, that are enamored with human wisdom, and so he has to emphasize God's wisdom is so much greater than human wisdom. He's going to 
to get them off of human thinking, get them back on focused on God. And he tells them, here's how you move forward. You don't judge anything until the appointed time. Now, they know what God says, so they can say yes and no on that. And they're not in the judgment seat. They're not determining. But there's other things where it's outside of the parameters of what God has given. He says, don't judge. You let the Lord do that. But then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, do not go beyond what is written. How do you move forward? Well, God's people have received the message. We've got the parameters. We have the message he's given us. And Paul counsels the church at Corinth, don't go beyond that. That's what you have. That's what you know. There's a dictum that has been has been used especially in decades past in our fellowship. Speak where the Bible speaks. Be silent where the Bible is silent. That seems to fit well with what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 4. So how does Paul help these Christian workers deal with deal with churches? These people that God is saying, these are mine. The first thing he does is he says, remember, you've been entrusted. There's a deposit that's been given to you. It comes from God. Guard it. And pass that Faithfully pass that same thing on to the next and subsequent generations. Train them to be able to pass it on to subsequent generations. He, he will point his, the workers to the truth that God's Word is the truth. It's the standard. In fact, this church is supposed to be the pillar and the foundation of what is right and true. And you look at it and you see what God is doing. And finally, he's going to also remind the workers that those who are entrusted, those who have a deposit, they're accountable. The steward is accountable. We're the people of God here. And we have God's message. And we live in a world that's, well, kind of crazy. God wants us to be His people in this crazy world. And He wants us to look like the image of His Son. And He's given us a way and He's given us directions on how we are to function. And what we need to do when we come and we offer up our spiritual sacrifices and praise Him. And as people who have been bought by Christ, let's be faithful. As those who have been entrusted and given what God has granted us. We don't deserve it. We have the privilege of serving our God. If you have not yet responded to the Lord, or if you have any need this evening, why not come this evening while we stand and sing?